Hello everyone. Welcome to Taking Fashion Seat. So tonight I'm going to be chatting about from book series, my life, a fashion style, and breaking all the rules, Pet in the City by Patricia Field. So um, Patricia Field is a bright light. Let me just tell you a little about her. Um, Patricia Field has been pushing the boundaries of style for more than five decades. Her distinctive approach for, to dressing has been widely popularized through the work in costume design, most notably Sex in the City. Remember that show, guys? That amazing show. For her work on the long-running HBO series, Feel won an Emmy Award. She also received an Academy Award nomination for The Devil Wears Prada, as well as enduring recognition for her contributions on series such as Ugly Betty, Hope and Faith, Younger, and most recently, Emily in Paris. Guys, she's a native of New York. Um, she opened up uh, a boutique in 1966, selling the fashion landmark in 2016. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about Pat Field. I mean, she's an icon in the world of fashion. And um, she's reading her book was amazing. It was fun. I enjoyed it. And I want to just share a little bit about the book with you. So um, the introduction is um, facing a wall of boxy hoodies, t-shirts, and sweatpants. I started to get a non, not so great feeling. I was on a shopping trip for the men on Run the World in the, le in the lead up to second season of Star Show, which was set to begin shooting in a few weeks. I was thrilled to be working again on the costumes for the half hour comedy about smart, funny, and ambitious female friends living and loving in Harlem. Dubbed by the media as the Black Sex in the City, the show was a fun and nuanced portrayal of independent modern Black women of course, who were wonderful clothes. So um, that's a little bit about the introduction. And I'm going to go on to read um, another part. In general, I dislike the rise of sweatshirts and sweatpants, a trend made precocious and widespread by the pandemic. Before costume consulting on Emily in Paris, I was told in showrunner Darren Starr, I'm going to take a look at Parisian women to see what the hell's going on there. When I traveled there, all I saw was um, arrondissement to arrondissement with jeans, sweatpants, hoodies, and sneakers. Forget French cheek. I told Darren, who had originally hired me to do costumes for one of her other shows, Sex in the City, it's dead. Instead of submitting to standard issue garb dictated by the Zionists, I chose to pack my bags with vibrant expression, which in this case, meant a wild patchwork dress by Dopey Tavio from my Lower East Side Art Fashion Gallery, which I paired with a vintage Kelly Green Chanel jacket family. I call myself the happiest clothes expert because no matter what's happening in the world, and believe me, a lot has happened in my lifetime, I live in my own world of pretty pictures, like the play of bright light and color in a painting on the thumping beat of a song that forces you onto the dance floor. A gorgeously Vibrant garment raises my spirits and bring me joy. Um, so that was the, in the introduction. And as I read, she was vibrant 
and she still is vibrant and colorful even back then and even in the future um because she just did emily in paris so um she's still an icon now um this is this chapter here talks about her family so it's called one my little girl days so um it shows a picture of the sultana um so it starts off with um she talked about her grandmother she says my grandmother spoke in pure greek she rarely broke into dialect not even when gathering with her girlfriends to drink turkish coffee have have a sweet and discuss the political and cultural affairs of the day sultana came from an educated family her sister was my great aunt vaskali i think it's vasilaka who also lived in astoria was an actress mainly performing in local theaters in queens the sum total of her hollywood career was when she played the mother of the priest and the exorcist oh my guys oh my gosh that's talking horror okay she was discovered by the film's director william fredkin my grandmother's brother demetrius worked for the greek orthodox church translating by the byzantine text into modern greek Sultana remained close to her siblings throughout the lives, physically and intellectually. Then she talked about her grandfather and, you know, the different foundations that she represented. And let's talk about her mother. So she said, my mother, Marika, gave me a lot of independence because she was very independent herself. I was free to roam our neighborhood, Yorkville, bouncing between our apartment on East 76th Street my public elementary school right across the street, the New York Public Library on 79th, and my parents' dry cleaning business three blocks away, where my mom spent most of the time. So guys, that was interesting, the fact that she was, um, her neighborhood was Yorkville, and her mother allowed her freedom. So can you imagine that? And that's what quality she has today. Because guys, she was free and independent. So um, she talked about, um, I arrived on February the 12th, 1942. My mom, who had been expecting a boy, planned on the name Billy. However, I didn't turn out to be Billy. When she left the hospital, I still didn't have a name. Having arrived not long before St. Patrick's Day, she found inspiration in the Irish holidays and decided to name me her new daughter, Patrick Hyde. So that's where she got her name, guys. Okay, and in the book, she showed a, uh, a picture of her and her sister, Joni, which was cute. She had a sister. Um, and as I'm thumbing through the book, she had her Aunt Van, who she was close to. And let's talk about cashmere. Because she said cashmere was the ultimate status symbol for my mom, who got a thrill from buying me Pringle of Scotland, cardigans or Barbara Lee pullovers, but our tastes were different. I didn't particularly like cashmere sweaters. Mary James aligned coats with Peter Pan collars. None of that was my style. At the shoe department in Bloomingdale's, where you stepped up on a platform to get your feet x-rayed for the proper sizing, I refused to even look at ballet slippers. I just wanted loafers and boots. So her style was totally different from childhood. So I'm going into two, wearing the pants. That's the title. And I wanted to read about um, her college. So college opened me up to subjects that I found really interesting and hadn't been exposed to in my high school education, especially government and philosophy. 
I took a philosophy course with Sidney Hook, the head of the department and a major political philosopher and democracy advocate. Professor Hook was a proper and pragmatic account knowledge, which says mainly that all proposed truths correct themselves over time if they are open to inquiry. A big critic of moral absolutism, like the kind you get in religion or some political institutions. So college, she opened me up to first affairs with a woman. My relationship with Susan was not a big pronouncement that I was now gay. My mind didn't work that. I always, you know, shaped at labels and still do. I hadn't had a lesbian situation before I met Susan. So she, you know, in college she had um, a friend named Susan. So she went into that and they hung out and did things and shopped and enjoyed each other. Um, then she um, showed a picture of her aunt Van and um, her sister Pat, which was nice guys because it was, looked like the nice um, 60s and 70s looks of her family. Okay, in chapter three, I talked about the birth of my first child, Pants Pulp, Washington Place. So she said, um, Anne was um, standing the wall with some kind of steel brush and stood back to examine her words. Um, having learned to distress wood from Jimmy, the Greek carpenter, who was helping us renovate the small Greenwich Village storefront, she had really gone to town with technique. The result was the 30 by 12 foot space looked like of an old Irish pub. It was an old, it was an odd choice for my vision for our new boutique. So guys, she, you know, the, she opened up her own boutique. As successful as I was in the first two jobs out of college at Alexandria's and Petrie stores, I always knew I wanted to work for myself. So guys, she started off her business and she knew early on what she wanted. So um, almost everything was right except that we ran out of money before we finished the renovations. Um, Joanne and I had spent every dime we had in savings. This was her partner um, that helped her um, with the store. Joanne and I had spent every dime we had in savings, including the money from a small trust fund established for me when my dad died. But we still need $1,500 to install a new floor. So I did something I'd never done before and never did again. I asked my mother for money. From the time I was 13, I always worked starting my fillings and for my mom's vacation employees, but I didn't necessarily just want to work for her. At 15, I got a job wrapping meat in a supermarket, which my mom did not approve. She had no problem with me working. She just didn't want me working in the supermarket meat department. Considering it's beneath me, she came up to the supermarket and demanded that the manager fired me and he did. So guys, she didn't, her mom didn't want her, you know, working in that type of job, like in a supermarket. She believed in working ethics, but she, her mother didn't want her working there. So um, her mother was the boss, not just her dry cleaning stores, but also her relationship with her husbands. She said husbands, guys. At least that's how it started out with my dad and Lou who had died by the time Joanne and I opened up the store. Mom was on her third husband, or as I call him, George. Um, she started out in the control with George III, a traveling salesman, 23 her junior, putting him to work in her dry cleaning. But over time, she lost her dominance as he inserted himself in the decision making. Um, so she wasn't, guys, a fan of her stepfather or you know, her mother's marriages. Um, as you can see, 
Um, so then the book went on to um, the first apartment Joanne and I shared was a one bedroom um, with a sunken living room on the fifth floor of 14 Washington Place, which became infam infamous with Ed Koch didn't move out of the rent controlled one bedroom on the 12th floor after he was elected mayor. So when Joanne and I moved in, anything outside of the NYU neighborhood was a mess. The Broadway of today, a retail juggernaut with every national retailer from H&M to Creightonboro has a presence, did not exist. This was like back then, guys. So, um, you know, they, they during the era, Joanne and I did the things that couples do. She go out to dinner, they entertain, get a pet, da 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 da, -da. Um, so designing is the details and that's where originality can come shine. For example, David Dalrymple, who would later design our collection, use sequins and item. I have, she looked down upon a cheap trick. Under a jacket, so that when you pop the collar, you got an unexpected and delightful surprise. So um, then there was a picture of Maraca and Pat in Philly. Um, and you know, she talked about, it took about a year for Pants Pub to make enough money to sustain itself, as well as Joanne and me. As I predicted, we had captive audience with NYU college girls who made up the bulk of the clientele. So guys, she had college students coming to shop and that was her baby, that store. The store was everything to her and you know, she was inspired um, about her tiny boutique. Um, and so I wanted to read this part. She wasn't a student or office worker from the neighborhood. She was a fancy woman whose boyfriend owned an entire building in Murray Hill, where she lived with her young daughter. So um, this one, she was talking about Yadatib, who was a regular customer. Her name was Yadatib, and she lived in Murray Hill. But it was nice that she, you know, knew who her clients and customers were. So chapter four talked about making a name for herself. So um, she started off by saying, um, I bought my shop during my first trip to Paris in the 70s. The army green wool coat was the only thing I bought for myself. The loose fitting cape shaped coat was practical and timeless, warm and sublime, innovative and elegant and marveled by the new Japanese designer, Izzy Mayaki. Um, then she said, this was long after Joanne and I moved to the store to 10 8th Street in, in 1971. Um, so they made a move. And then the, she talked about the disco era. The disco era also inspired women to invest in their wardrobes. I returned from Paris with a new ingredient. Yes, more designers and yes, pricier, but definitely worth it. My trip represented a big shift and the way I presented my shop it wasn't just about a higher price point, but also a more refined fashion sensibility. So basically this chapter talked about glamour in the 70s. And now let's talk about guys, Studio 54. So Studio 54 was just the start of New York City's great clubs. The sweet seeds planted in the 70s flourished throughout the 80s into such a beautiful and exotic flowers as Paradise Garage 12 West Area. Boy Park, Pyramid and Sarair, a chic lesbian bar located in Upper East Side Duplex. These were places um, where no one was caught dead with a full look. Um, and then she showed like all of her friends and Paris. She had pictures, beautiful pictures of many of her um, gay friends. Um, and she talked about um, um, different places that they, you know, like hung out during that period. 
So that chapter was interesting. Um, and I'm going to read um, um, one more portion of this section of the book. So um, I'm going to read the end. So um, I tried to teach my children many things, but one of my most important lessons was if you do something special, people will follow you. And then you can sell it right back to them. Who are you more likely to buy lipstick from? Some basic girl or the mesmerizing Miss Lepore? I offered these castaway kids a chance to sell out just stuff by themselves, and as time passed, they did not disappoint. So basically, she helped a lot of people, and she helped people that, you know, people didn't treat right. So, you know, and they were like her kids, and that was amazing. Chapter 5 talking about the world is bizarre. Um, and she started when Myra and I walked up to Obermeyer Booth at the Las Vegas Supporting Goods Show. We turned more than a few heads. My signature poppy red hair, a color I think works well with my olive complexion, usually stands out and makes me recognizable. Wearing a black cat suit on their five foot nine inch frame, accessorized with knee high black patent leather boots, Maya really stood out from the sporting goods manufacturers and coaches at the show. So she was in Vegas and she did some work there in chapter five, which was very interesting. Um, and I'm going to go on to chapter six because we're winding down. Um, minimalist meet max, maximalist. And she said, labels, especially when it comes to people. But my girlfriend, Barbara Duniti, was the undeniable minimalist. She was a minimalist before that was even a thing and honestly helped to craft the aesthetic. A talented and successful stylist, she was ultimate snob. Zorin was her uniform. The designer clothes was completely free of adornment, so as not to take anything away from the extravagantly luxurious fabrics he used. I'm talking not even a button or zipper. Expensive, unstructured, and pared down to scam. Zorian's designs were described by the fashion critics Kathy Zorn as Gap for the Rich. When Barbara styled the Gap campaigns, she elevated the mass market clothes to the level of her favorite designs. So, and then she said, at the Harper's Bazaar offices, Marianne sat opposite Barbara, who at that time was assistant to another legend, Chino Mochado, and had fled the Japanese occupation her native. Shanghai as a child in 1946, especially landing in Paris, where she pawed around with the likes of Franco Turford, started modeling for Givenchy, Balenciaga, and Oleg Cassini. Okay, guys, and she talked about um, many of her relationships during that period. Um, and I want to read you guys um, a part um, in, of the book in chapter 7 with Sex in the City because this is like my favorite part of the book. So she said, I was rummaging around in the $5 bin at a Midtown fashion showroom when I found it, the perfect piece for Sarah Jessica Parker to wear and the opening title sequence of her new show on HBO. In the box of sale garments, trends from season past that died on the vine, a white tool peeked out like the frothy crest of wave in a sea of throwaways. I pulled out, came a sort of a chic white tutu. I imagined pairing the short, tiered, tall skirt with the small tee or tank for a look that was both contemporary and cool. I also thought Sarah Jessica Parker would be able to relate to this crazy skirt because of the background as a ballet dancer. Just as important though, the tutu style skirt was whimsical, adventurous, and unexpected, kind of like the show. 
sex in the city. So she worked, that was one of her biggest and biggest and prominent um, body of work that she did working with the amazing cast of Sex in the City. I'm going to read a little more. My search for the raw material to create costumes of style in general is never confined to shops or showrooms. I use whatever is stimulating and in arm's reach. This was the case with the gold nameplate necklace I saw my young Hispanic and African-Americans customers. The glamorous golden name tag was self-identifying in a positive way and immediately brought Sarah Jessica, Jessica to mind. This was a time in fashion when every market editor used to wear the same black Jill Stewart pants and black Prada backpack. So the idea of putting a sophisticated New Yorker in an accessory more likely to be spotted in Hollis, Queens than on the West Village Hudson Street with a leap of the imagination. So guys, she showed pictures of her and the cast um, of Sex in the City. You know, she did some things um, with Fendi. When I walked into Fendi's showroom to shop for the second season of Sex, I didn't know what I was looking for. I never do, which is part of my recipe. Before the series premiered on HBO on June 6, 1998, nobody knew we were alive other than Manala Blanklin, Kristen Louboutin, who made metallic moves in six different colors for Sarah Jessica that she wore a nonstop designer, weren't interested in our little show. It wasn't until the first season was three quarters through air that I went to Fendi and noticed a shift. You know, so she traveled, she picked up pieces for the show, guys. There was parties. Um, in chapter um, nine, she made a name for herself again. You know, she did some amazing things. Um, she was down on South Beach. So when Sex in the City ended on February the 22nd, 2004, many of us who worked on it asked ourselves, how did we follow that? It was a good question. Six seasons and many, many outfits later, the series had inspired a devotion to board on Religion Forever. And Jess in the US, Italy, apparently had a talk show exhausted, devoted in Curry, Miranda, Charlotte, Samantha, and their clothes. Um, so she left there, guys. And then she did some other things, work with Darren Starr. And um, I'm going to read the end of the book, a quote. And that's where we're going to end the podcast tonight. If it is interesting and imaginative, I go for it. I enjoyed reading Pat in the City. She is truly indeed a fashion icon. And I hope you pick up the book when you get a chance because it's very interesting. And um, Pat feel will ever be known for great things and styling many people in life. Thank you for listening to my podcast tonight. Have a good evening.